Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guest to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They tell me four things that they cherish and want to keep safe, but they also tell me one thing that they'd like to get rid of from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is one of my favourite stand-up comedians, the brilliant Mark Steele, who it turns out was brought up very close to where I was brought up. Brought up. We're about the same age, basically. I mean, I look so much younger than him. Now, Mark is a comedian, unlike me, obviously, having performed stand-up all over the world for many years. He's a broadcaster, a newspaper columnist, writing regularly for The Guardian, The Independent and The Daily Mirror, and an author, having written five books. He's made many appearances on radio, television and as a guest panellist on such shows as QI, The News Quiz, Loose Ends, Nevermind the Buzzcocks, Have I Got News For You, Mock the Week and BBC's Question Time. He's had three series of his own show, The Mark Steele Lectures, on TV and BBC Radio 4, along with The Mark Steele Solution, The Mark Steele Revolution, Dedicated Troublemaker, and the multi-award-winning show, Mark Steele's in Town. Anyway, that's enough about Mark for now. We will find out a lot more about him and his life as he tells me the five things he wants to put in his time capsule. Hold on to your hats, because here's the wonderful Mark Steele. I've got me, um, I've got me things. I think I know. I will always within a day. And I thought, oh, why did I choose that? And that? <laughs> Absolutely. I always think I've never been asked to do Desert Island Disc, but I think that must be one of the most terrifying, especially if you're a music 
fanatic as I am, if music isn't really, it just tinkles along in the background to, for your life. You go, oh well, that you know, there's some I heard when my kid was born or whatever. But there, but I, but for me, it would be like, oh no, I, this is it's set in stone now. As this is what the eight tunes were. When they write your obituary, they'll say, well, his favourite eight records were. Yes, but it is a moment in time, isn't it? Because if it was 10 years earlier, or even a day earlier, I'd probably choose a different set of... There's uh, a couple of times when I've seen gigs that I've thought... A couple of times at Glastonbury, I saw yeah. Jimmy Cliff, you know, reggae Jimmy Cliff, yeah. at Glastonbury once, about 2005, and the sun just shone beautifully. And he had all these backing singers in these amazing bright yellow outfits. I remember I just sort of stood there, I was on my own, and I thought... Oh, my God, this is magical, absolutely magical. Then afterwards I thought, oh, it must have just been me in a funny mood, you know, whatever. And then everyone was talking about that as being this sort of magical moment. So whatever it was, whatever confluence of circumstances that just reached into people's emotions. Yeah. And also when I saw Stormzy there a couple of years ago, I just thought it, it just, I actually wept. I thought this is so gloriously beautiful. And then I thought, have I gone mad? <laughs> Why am I stood in a field sort of weeping at Stormzy? And then it's sort of gone down as one of the great gigs. And then apparently afterwards he went off and went, oh, the sound was shit and he was really depressed. It's weird, isn't it? All right. Have you got your tea? I've got my tea. I've got, I'm going to get me milk. <laughs> Ever since the start of lockdown, I just wake up at these stupid times. Mm. And I've got into a rhythm, especially during the last, the really nasty lockdown through the winter. Uh. I've got into a rhythm of a routine of going to the park for eight o'clock. And I've been writing a book. And uh, I start at eight o'clock. The cafe was open. There was one table and chair left in the middle of the park. And so then I'd get me coffee and I'd go and sit there and it freezes in January, freezing. I hate the cold at the best time. Freezing, gloves on, everything, with this laptop. And then people had just come past. There was an Irish bloke and I was every day walking his dog. Right, because that's your office. So I started calling it in the office. <laughs> and obviously, you're at your office there this morning. It's cold in the office. It's cold. It was a dog. <laughs> but that routine, and I can't get out of it. So and now actually there's a cafe that opens at seven. So I'm up there every day at seven. It's better than my routine, which is 10 o'clock at night. I suddenly think, oh, I really could do with a glass of wine. Oh, that's a well, that's a perfect routine. Is it? Yeah. Not if it drifts into a bottle, it isn't. And then the crack pipe. When it gets to the crack pipe, that's where I draw the line. Yeah, me too. <laughs> right, I've got the window open. Lovely. Where are you, by the way? Tunbridge Wells, down in Kent. Oh, Kent. Blessed Kent. Yeah. Well, we have that in common. Oh, really? Are you from Kent? I was brought up in Kent, not Tunbridge Wells, sadly. I was brought up, you know, being brought up in Kent. Well, we can, we'll come on to all this. All right, then. Okay, fine. Well, let's talk about the five things you want to put inside a time capsule. Okay, right. Excellent. So let's just start with my first one. Yeah, why not? Perfect. My first thing that I think I would like to put in my time capsule is, uh, and I, I thought about this, about whether it should just be something general, but I, and in the end I decided it should be something very specific, and I don't know where you would find this object. Mm. My first record player, uh, when I was, I think I was 14 or 15, and I, I can't say I had the most happy childhood, I was brought up in Merry Kent, but not Kent as, <laughs> as you would know it, 
in idyllic Tunbridge Wells, <laughs> which is very pretty. And I, you know, I know the cricket ground there, the Neville ground and so on, and lovely Tunbridge Wells. Mm. Oh, I went curling in Tunbridge Wells. You can, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I was married, my wife, this is a very sweet thing she did. My wife bought me as a birthday present a day at the curling, <laughs> learning curling, because I'm a, an absolute sports fanatic, which may crop up in the course of this chat. Mm. And I really, really like the curling. I like most things, but I like the curling. And so she got me a, a lesson, and we all went down and had a lesson. And you spent sort of, un, uh, yeah, I quite took to it. I was all right at it. There's a barn, and I don't know, I suppose farms have got to diversify. And these days, <laughs> a farm can't just exist like in the 15th century. No good just growing barley and maize. So uh, they go, they go, no, I'll tell you what else we're going to do. We're going to turn the barn into a curling rink. Get them pigs out of there and freeze yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, the odd one comes in. Oh, no, that was going right in the middle of the circle. And <laughs> I went to that curling place the first time. I didn't know it was in Tunbridge Wells. I got invited by an old friend of mine, and he was producing the Catherine Tate show. So I went there, and they had the full sort of catering and the Winnebago's and everything all in the yard. Were they doing a curling sketch then? They were doing a curling sketch, yeah. Where else (laughs) are you going to do it? This is why we needed Brexit, you see. Farms were forced to do curling sketches as the only way to... Maybe that was part of the EU subsidy. Uh, Yeah, so this was not that bit of... Because Kent's very peculiar, isn't it? As you clearly know, Mike. Kent is a very strange... I would would say people say it's the Garden of England, but they misunderstand that. They think of, ooh, the Garden and beautiful little rockeries and lovely dahlias, but it's not. It's a garden with an upturned pram in it and a (laughs) tyre swinging about and the dog's done a mess. But there's pretty bits as well. So as you go through Kent... It just, every bit of it, you think, what's like an odd dream? What's that doing there? There's a quarry and then a beautiful orchard and then an oast house Mm. and then a disused mine (laughs) and then Romney Marshes, which is just looks like the sort of place where every 50 yards you're going to find a a corpse that has never been discovered. And (laughs) it's really mad. I mean, Dimchurch, Romney Island Dimchurch (laughs) Railway, the miniature railway, the greatest tourist attraction in the world. Far, far, far better than the pyramids and the Taj Mahal because <laughs> you get on a hide. I mean, I presume you're familiar with the Robbie Hyde. I am, yes, yeah. It's a tiny, 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 tiny railway and you squeeze in and you just about get in, but it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. It's been going since about the 20s, I think. Mm-hmm. And you get on a hive and there's a sort of lovely local volunteer and he clips your ticket. There you go, enjoy your trip. And tourists must think, oh, this is wonderful. We're going to go through some delightful little villages <laughs> and we'll probably stop somewhere and have a picnic on a lace tablecloth with lovely chutney. And then it'll probably end up at a wonderful destination where there's just the most delightful vistas. And then 10 minutes later, you're going through Dimchurch and it goes through back gardens, doesn't it? And people are waving and that, you know, and then a bloke with Union Jack shorts and no top and a big sunburnt stomach looks back. What you fucking waving at? <laughs> and then, oh, I'm sure at the end, it's the most glorious, glorious destiny. We must end up at some wonderful stately home and we all buy honey. And instead, it goes just into this massive sort of field of pebbles. 
with just higgledy-piggledy houses plonked around it and hurtles towards the Dungeness power station. <laughs> and it just hurtles towards it and Taurus was thinking, oh, my God, no, this is how they get electricity in Kent. They burn Taurus. We're just going straight into the middle of this thing. And this thing's going, ah. You either think, oh, my God, we've got to get out of this sinister place. Or if you're like me, you just think this is absolutely beautiful and uh yeah i try to go there every year i've not been the last couple of years for obvious reasons but i love it there i'm as fond of strood and the medway towns as i am of of the garden of england i was brought up in swanley which is the sort of bit much nearer to south london so you if you come out of what sidcup that sort of place there's a pinter play where sidcup is sort of almost comically used as the as an example of a, you know, that Sidcup's the sort of worst place you could be sort of thing. Mm. But when you're brought up in Swanley, Sidcup is the great city that you aspire <laughs> to. Ooh, look at you going to Sidcup. Mm. So the big industry of Swanley, just in the way that Sunderland had its shipyards or whatever, uh, it, it was petty crime, <laughs> making stuff that was of no use to anyone. There was one pub in Swanley called the Lullingston, which uh, I would say it's it's literally suicide going in there. These people who go to Switzerland are wasting their money. Just get a one-way ticket to Swanley, go in there. So I'm not from around here, mate. That'll save your bloody out as you're it. I can't, it just... <laughs> Isn't it funny how the roughest pubs are named after the most idyllic sort of gorgeous places? Lullingston Castle <laughs> is really beautiful. Yeah, exactly. We said it was a castle. Now you've got a joust. <laughs> and I must emphasise, most of the people uh, trying really hard, brilliant people and stuff, and even the people who made your life a little bit unpleasant, you know, not their fault in particular. There was a, <laughs> there was one family, you know, like in, in lots of these towns, there's one family that's, yeah. sort of, there's about 150 different members of this family, <laughs> and they, and you don't, you could, no one could possibly, the greatest genealogists in the world could never quite possibly connect <laughs> to, you know, they'd probably meet each other and after an hour go, oh, right, turns out you're my brother. <laughs> and every one of this one family was just, uh, magnificent petty criminal of the most glorious order, and there was one. <laughs> there was one of these. Uh, one of these blokes come round to my house once because me and a mate decided to make a few bob. Right, we'd see if we could buy cars cheap and sell them. I mean, I don't know nothing about cars. I couldn't tell you what an engine is, <laughs> but we bought this car, a Ford Corsair, for for twelve quid from a bloke in a pub. And we polished it and vacuumed it and put in a little advert in the newsagent windows before the days of Gumtree, obviously, and all that, mm. uh, for 20 quid. And we thought we'd make eight quid. We're laughing. And one of the blokes from this family came round and he looked at the car and we thought, oh, he's probably going to use it for some bloody miserable burglary that was destined to go wrong. And he went, and he went uh, yeah, could I in? I said, yeah, of course can, yeah. So he got in, just drove off. <laughs> Just try, I was laughing when I saw it. He just got in and just, just drove off. And I, it sort of, it was this pathetic moment with me and my mate sort of watched it go down the road. And I thought, oh, he's coming back, isn't he? And then that awful moment, I know he's noisy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know where he lives, but you dared go round. We did go round. No. We did go round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about that for stupid? <laughs> I remember his wife out the window. Fuck off! 
<laughs> well, I noticed that you very wisely haven't named that family. Oh, no, no. <laughs> oh there's probably thousands of them still there. <laughs> anyway, this is nothing to do with it, right? Yeah, so, no, you're a record player, record player. Come yeah. on. So, I, this, so well, except that that is the background to my sort of teenage years, and I, you know, I had some happy times, but it wasn't the cheeriest, really, and. I was obsessed with music, and I and, I, and it really puzzled. I thought about it quite a lot in recent times because I've written a book about my adoption. I mean, a lot of people are, have been adopted, and all the stories are fascinating, and so on. I don't. I'm not going to say my one is more interesting than anyone else's, but it is more bizarre because I knew I was adopted. My mum and dad were great they, in that respect. They never ever hid it from me. Um, which was strange. I would say, you know, I'd, so I knew that I was adopted before I knew where babies came from, which is <laughs> quite odd, isn't it? Yeah, think, very weird. You know, so I know I'm, well, I don't know quite what I thought, but I knew that um, I'd been adopted. So that, that was great. And I never had any interest at all in pursuing my natural mum and dad uh, until I had a child of my own, and it, it sounds terrible. I feel it's really bad when I think about this, because it, it's only then that it occurred to me, I was quite a big thing having a child, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Up till then, I'd have thought, oh, my natural mum won't remember me after all this time, you know. She'd have thought, oh, did I have a son? I can't remember. But of course, until <laughs> when I had a kid of my own, and I, you know, I speak as a man, and it goes, obviously it's considerably less than if you're a woman. Mm. Of course, of course, you never forget having a child, do you? Don't. <laughs> Nobody ever sort of is in a supermarket and suddenly says, Didn't we used to have a son. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I can't. What happened to him? Don't be ridiculous, Daphne. Well, you know we did. Don't be ridiculous. You'd remember that. <laughs> so uh, it then occurred to me in the months after my lad was born uh, that I had a bit of a duty, really, to try and find my natural mum because she's probably wondering where I was. Uh, in the end, she wasn't. But Was that also for your child, for the child that had a grandparent? Yeah, it might have been. I don't know, Mike. I, don't, I really don't. I don't know. Yes, possibly. I mean, I, um, anyway, whatever it was, it, it, it was neither in or there because in the end she wasn't interested. But So I never met her and then she died. Uh, but I did get to meet her, um, God, really extraordinary actually. I mean, I was with my, um, my wife at the time and we were up in Scotland and we were in a place where I knew I'd, I'd sort of gathered through various bits of information that my natural mum had owned a delicatessen in a little town called Dunkeld, which is a sweet little place up there. They don't like that. And up there in Scotland and it's, a, oh, it's classically Scottish. Oh, heather and thistles and a wee stream. And so I was up there and went into the delicatessen, found the delicatessen. I thought, well, this is the one my mum used to own. And so I had a sandwich and a coffee and I went up to the counter and I said to the woman working there, I said, I just found this. I didn't plan to say this. I just sort of said, so um, do you know who owns this delicatessen now? And the woman went, oh, hey, so we woman called Frances, which I knew that Frances was my natural mother. Oh, wow. Oh, right. I thought, well, it could be a different Frances. And I knew my natural mother had moved to Rimini. And then she said, oh, she's a real living in Remini right now. She doesn't come out here often. So I thought, wow, wow. And then she said, did you know her at all? 
And I said, oh, I used to. She went, oh, hey. And then just as I was leaving, she said, her sister lives just a few doors along the way. And she went, <laughs> she went, I'm not sure the address here, but if you pop into the wee news agents over the road, they'll give you the address. Wow. And of course, then there was a bit of me thought, because I'm, you know, I'm used to Swanley and living in South London, I thought, well, I can't just go into the news agents and ask for it, because I'm thinking, imagine going to the news agent in Croydon and going, I'm looking for Margaret. <laughs> yeah. She's an old lady, lives on her own. <laughs> yeah, don't know exactly where. Give us the address. <laughs> But of course he was, oh, hey, she's just over the way and past the stream and on by the third oak tree on the right there. So I went round and and uh, I knocked on the door and I said, Margaret, hey, what is, um, not an easy way to say this, but we're related. And of course she was just, oh my God, oh my word. So from that moment onwards, I became acquainted with um, my natural mum's family were very lovely but they then got in touch with my natural mum and she wasn't um she wasn't interested in meeting up however i went to rimini about um as we sit here and speak now about a year and a half ago just before the lockdown it was just sort of hearing all the news about china and stuff at the time when i was there so it was that time and i met this uh, lovely woman antonella who was my, my natural mum's best friend in Rimini, and she was so Italian, Italian, everything about so Italian. She had a little poodle called Clarabella. Everything was so Italian, and, uh, and she was all very emotional. But we go into, so we, we had this little routine that, that developed over the days I was there. We go into a shop. She, she'd say, "We must go." I mean, not, I know no Italian at all, but she, we, we go to a shop, and then away she'd be talking to this this bloke in a shoe shop or something. And then clearly she'd suddenly said to him, this is Francis' son, you know, Francis. And then suddenly you go, oh, Francis, oh, 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 oh. And then um, he'd say something and then she'd say to me, he say, uh, you got the Francis' eyes, you got her eyes. And then he'd all be very Italian, hey, and hugs and all that. And then we'd wander off and then we'd do the same thing or in a cafe or in a bar and everywhere there were people going, Oh, Francis, and they all loved her. So you got a sense of your mother from all these amazingly nice people that she was friends with. Oh. So she surrounded herself with really lovely people who cared enormously about her. Oh. And yet there's this strange, this extraordinary, I find yeah, it... Well, she never told anyone, Mike. She never told anyone at all, apart from one or two people uh, who I've come across, but even her own sister's. Um, it, it's extraordinary, sad tale. But then we went to, uh, I went out with the sort of, with the sons and daughters of the people who were uh, uh, friends. So they were sort of more like late 20s sort of age. And I went out with them one night, just delightful people. And we went to one bar and there was a guy called Salvatore. None of them had known at all until after she died that she'd had a son. And just as I was leaving, this guy, Salvatore, he said to me, and I swear I've not, I've not changed anything in this, he said to me, Mark, he said, so well, you must come, you must come, you must stay, all that. And then he said, Mark, always I find a Francis, she is uh, wonderful, she is such fun, such joy. And then he said, but always she is angry. I see she is angry. And always I think, why is she angry? And now I know, now I know what it is make her angry. And I thought, well, well, you spotted that then, Salvatore. And so I don't think she did forget. I think she just had to put it out of her mind. Mm. 
what we probably haven't got time to talk about, but even more mad is that she did reveal to someone who got in touch with her for me, she didn't want to know me, she said, but she did reveal who the father was. And it turns out my father was the world backgammon champion in 1976, having been part of the Claremont set with James Goldsmith, Tiny Rowlands and Lord Lucan. <laughs> His daughter is now a supermodel who attained fame in this country two or three years ago because she was going out with Liam from One Direction and so on and so on. He's worth tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. He's got a $40 million house in Beverly Hills, amongst other things. So you're sorted then? Well, I'm not. We we uh, <laughs> we did meet. We met. Uh, we, we ex- really? Yeah, 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 yeah. We met up uh, about 10 years ago now, and then every, about once a year we exchange emails. He's always very friendly, but very, very cagey. And he's, you know, he's fine. He's not disputed. He said, yeah, 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 I remember Francis and all that. He, but I, I liked him, but he did write in his last email, you know, I'm aware that politically we come from different planets. Uh, <laughs> I liked him. He was very funny, very, very Jewish, and, I, you know, so very brilliantly Jewish. And when we met up with him, I went into a cafe in Mayfair around the corner from the Claremont Club. I mean, because when he's mentioned anywhere in the news or anything, he's mentioned as old gambling pal of Lord Lucan. And then there was one in one of the articles about Liam from One Direction. There was a picture of Liam and the, and his my half sisters, sounds ridiculous, supermodel girlfriend, right? Picture of them. Underneath that, a picture of my natural father. Then a picture of Lord Lucan, and then a picture of me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> still has been revealed to be illegitimate. <laughs> He was uh, he was world backgammon champion, so he was uh, yeah. So we've discussed that a little bit. But when I met up with him, I went into this cafe, very posh cafe in Mayfair that I think he used to frequent back in the Claremont Club days. I don't know. And I thought, hold, oh, I recognise him. And I thought, oh look, there's one bloke sat there. That's it. That's you. That's definitely definitely you. I mean, people say that pictures of him when he's younger look identical to me. Apparently, so I sort of went over and uh, he just stood up. And I swear, this is the first words I've heard said to me from either of my mother or father. This is at the age of 49. And he says to me, I've got a lot of meetings today. This is the most awkward. (laughs) Very honest. I said, that's brilliant. And he'd paid, because the last he'd heard, and he'd said this to me in an email, was that he'd paid for a termination. Ah. Uh, And then she... Clearly, they didn't have the termination, I think, evidence suggests. So I, I said to him, uh, well, he said, this is the most awkward. He said, last I know, I, as I said, you know, I gave her the money and that's the last I saw her. And I said, um, yeah, I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm in touch with her family now. So if you want, I can try and get the money back that they obviously owe you. <laughs> and he went, <laughs> and I said, I think it was a better joke than this. And he went, yeah, it was, it was. <laughs> and, then he sat, and I thought, and then he sat down. He did another job. And then I had a hat on. I always wear a hat. And he said, "Oh, it's a good hat." I said, "Thanks." He said, "Is it necessary or just an affectation?" <laughs> and I thought, "This is fantastic. The most Jewish person I've ever met. This is fantastic." I just expected the next thing he'd say was, "Oh, so last night I catch my best friend in bed with my wife." I say, "Aby, I have to, but you." I thought, "I would have been happy with that." Yeah. <laughs> No, I liked him. I liked him, and I you know, still like him. Mm. I think he's probably done one or two things I probably wouldn't approve of, but there we are. But all of this 
Yeah. The background of all of this is that, and this is really only in recent times, I mean, particularly over the last year when I've been writing this book, because apart from the story, which I think it is an amazing story, but apart from that, I sort of feel, oh, I could probably be studied as a, as a little example of like, is it nature or nurture that mm. makes what you are? Because I didn't really fit in. Uh, I don't think in any way they are, you know, inferior or anything. I would never dream of saying anything like that. But I didn't feel that I fitted in. And it's a very peculiar thing because you can sort of try and articulate it, but mostly it's just a sense that I thought, oh, I'm not really, you know, when I look back on my childhood, I never quite fitted in. You know, my mum and dad didn't really have, I don't know, there was no sense of you would not, think oh there's comedy mm. there or all the things i'm interested in yeah it's funny isn't it the moment you meet your natural father instantly there's a comedic connection yeah yeah exactly yeah. and my good mate matthew norman who's a very funny uh writer on loads of columns and he knew charles sarchi strangely <laughs> and he said do you know and said the name of my natural father and uh, he said charles sarchi went oh yeah yeah i knew him yeah you know what his trouble was he was always trying to be a comedian Wow. Amazing. Amazing. But yes. not only that, lots and lots of other little things. So, and I don't know, and I'm not going to, you know, I know you always get people on these pro on GMTV, someone's found their natural mother. Oh, and she liked custard creams and I like custard creams or some <laughs> shit like that. No, I know that's all twaddle, because I thought my natural father was French, which turned out to be lie. That's what I was always told. And I said, you know, as I was growing up, sometimes I'd say to people, oh, yeah, my natural father was French. And they'd say, oh, that explains why you like cheese. But, <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it's not as simple as that. But, and give up in a war so easily. Yes. Yeah, 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 you always do. After, <laughs> after a few months. <laughs> I noticed that about you. When you were six, you used to build a little wall to stop the kids next door coming around and stealing your toys, and then they go around the wall. But music. Now, this fascinates me. My, You know, you hear sorts of – there's lots of people, isn't there? There's a programme on Radio 4 where they have a – is it called your inheritance track or something, a thing they do on Saturday mornings and people mm. go on as guests and they say, oh, my mum always used to play Diana Ross and so my inheritance track was Ain't No Mountain High Enough or something or whatever it is or my dad always used to play Beethoven and so you know, the Pastoral Symphony I grew up with or whatever it is. I didn't have that. Music was of no interest, you know, like – you know, people who just don't really have an affinity with music. They like a cat. Oh, this is a nice tune. Oh, I like Tire Yellow Ribbon because that reminds you know, or mm -hmm. something. And that's fine. You don't have to be interested in anything. But there's that person. And then there's someone like myself who just constantly has a beat in there. You know, constantly I'm thinking there's a song going on in my head. And it wasn't. I remember when I was about four, and I'm quite pleased with this when I look back at it, the first song that I remember really moving me, maybe I was more than four, six maybe, was My Boy Lollipop by Millie, which Lovely. it turns out to have been a really significant song because it was the first popular reggae brought to this country, that sort of scar with that scar beat mm. and so on. And when I was about sort of seven or eight, I started listening to classical music and I had a teacher who was great, who used to take us on trips to the festival hall where there was this sort of young person's 
sort of classical thing and we go to the festival and I'd love it, I always go there and I'd love it. And I've always just I'm just completely always fascinated and obsessed with, with listening to music. And my mum and dad, no interest at all. And of course, the funny thing with that generation is that the generation gap is assumed to be something that's constant, but it isn't. The only music in the house were these four spool tape things that my dad had. And I had no idea why he had them, where they came from. And he had this Grundig tape recorder and you had to open it up, the big old green thing, and it had these huge clunky buttons on it. <laughs> and you had to get put the tape on a spool and then you'd wind the tape through some sort of little slot onto another spool mm. and then press this big clunky button that looks like the sort of thing from a 1965 science fiction film that you clunk <laughs> a button and a wall opens and there's a sort of another race of people living behind in a cave somewhere. Click a dunk. And then it would go and it would sort of whisper, well, it wouldn't whisper around, it goes slowly round. And the only four tapes that my dad had were musicals. There was Annie Get Your Gun, Sound of Music and Carousel. And also the other one was a collection of Second World War songs. So I just knew all of these songs, you know, like I'm eight years old and I knew all the words to bless them all, bless them all, the long and the short, because that's all the music, but, you know, in a, any port in a storm, as it were. And that's, and, but it was something. And so I would listen to that all the time. And then when I got a little transistor radio, that's, I don't know, I got some pocket money and bought something, and I would listen to Radio Luxembourg under the sheets, you know, when I'm supposed to be asleep when I was 11. <laughs> and I'd just hear all of this stuff and Mark Bolan or Bowie and all of this and soul. And it just seemed so dangerous, soul and Bob Marley. And oh, what a world. And so then when I was... 14, 15, and my dad, bless him, he, he uh, gave us some money and I got a record player with it. And that was just the first record I bought. I just absolutely just loved it. That was my retreat and I would sit in my room and that was took me away from the world that I was in, which I wasn't very happy with, didn't feel comfortable with. Mm. And I would sit there and listen to this stuff. And it all seemed, I laugh now, I'd play Dark Side of the Moon. And I'd think, wow, yeah, because it's, yeah, they're telling the truth. Because there's a line in the, the song Us and Them that goes, the generally sat while the lines on the maps move from side to side. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's what they're doing. The generals, they're telling the truth about the generals and the map. And uh, <laughs> it was all so powerful. And the, the Diamond Dogs album, so sinister at the start of it and stuff. And I, oh, God. It was just about a futuristic world. And it just took me to other places. And then later, when I was 17, uh, and I was sort of partly lucky and partly unlucky, uh, enough to be the perfect age for punk. Mm. So then when I, I got the first Clash album, and of course you didn't know, like now you hear it and you just put it on Spotify, whatever. you had to go and physically buy the record, bring it home and stuff. So I went uh, over to the record shop in Dartford, uh, that you all know as the other end of the 477 bus route from Alpington. <laughs> and I remember putting the first Clash album and the record player and the paraphernalia of it was beautiful that all the business click it on record turn it on the record player needle that little moment before it's actually going to start and then the opening bars of the first track of the first clash album it's a little rock and roll and i thought 
oh, wow, they're, I don't know what they're on about, but they're angry about something. And uh, <laughs> it spoke to me, really. And I don't know, in lots and lots of, in a way, I think punk's a bloody nuisance because most of it is actually nonsense. But um, <laughs> not the Clash, I think they do stand up, but most of it is twaddle. And then, you know, and then as I got a bit older and, of course, record players, I discovered jazz and blues and country and all the other stuff. Well, I grew up in a similar household where, in fact, I think we had probably about 10 albums, and but I think they'd been yeah. bought a long, long time. Three of them at least were Max Bygraves, which is just, you yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was it. My dad loved music. My dad sang all the time. I think it's probably because he didn't need to listen to someone else. He would sing around the house <laughs> all the time. So he was happy to have his own voice rather than other things. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I wish I'd had anything. You know, when I look back on it, I think what frustrates me, and I'm not criticising them for this because you can't criticise someone for not liking something. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but what frustrated me is that I think if someone feels passionately about music, I don't really mind whether it's something I don't like. Mm. You know, so um, some of the drum and bass stuff and that, I think I don't, I'm not really my cup of tea, I don't think. But if someone's, you know, my son sometimes would go when he was sort of 17, 18, he'd go, oh, listen to this, Dad, and all this stuff. And I think I just loved the fact that he was so passionate about it. But I, they were, you know, when I look back on it, I think, well, if my mum and dad had played Sinatra in the house, that would have been fantastic. I mean, I yeah. love listening to Sinatra now. But nothing, 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 absolutely nothing, no interest in it. No, so I'm not having a go at them anymore. You know, someone might have a go at me for not. I'm not particularly interested in gardening and that. <laughs> but what I did love was that when my daughter was about 15 and asked her what she wanted for Christmas, she said, "Oh, Dad, I'd love a record player." And she just started collecting records. And then I would hear all this stuff coming from her room, and I thought, right, this is one of the many reasons why I think your generation surpasses mine. You'll play Bowie and then you'll play some South London grime thing and then you'll play Thelonious Monk mm. and then you'll play Jake Cole, you know, the rap or uh, Kendrick Lamar or something. And so many of people of uh, the over 50s, so many of us are absolutely stuck in our in our youth, in a way, the same as your parents were stuck in songs that they heard during the war. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. I find it actually one of the few things that I find actually I find it almost impossible not to say something. Usually I, I avoid conflict, but if I come across someone who goes, why don't they bloody the youngsters of today, the music is no good, we had punk in our day, I think, <laughs> oh, you are the most miserable, miserable arse. I mean, I, you know, for example, I saw um, a couple of years ago now, but the, the rapper, Dave, there's uh, an album called Psychodrama, and he did a thing at the Brits, uh, a song called Black on the piano. It's just about the experience of being black mm. in Britain, in modern Britain. And it's so complex, and the piano is so beautiful, and it was so powerful, and I know millions of people. It was on ITV at nine o'clock. Wow. Mm. And I think, no, that's way more complex, way more articulate, way more passionate, way more thoughtful than anything we had in our day with punk. Definitely. Mm. You know, and I love the clash and the pistols and the damned, but this, you know, that was astounding. And uh, 
And, you know, I think Stormzy as well, I think is just astonishing, astonishingly thoughtful and, and articulate and bright and, and amazing. So I was so, when my daughter sort of, when I hear my daughter talking about music, I think that's brilliant. And what I love, you know, she sort of knows as well, she got me for Christmas, she got a thing of Springsteen doing a live show where he's talking about the origins of his songs and that. And I thought, no, that was, that's perfect. You know me, you know. Yeah. But then equally, she'll go. She'll go. Oh, listen to this. There's some dubstep thing or something. So yeah, for them, music has just continued to expand and expand and expand. They have all the stuff that we had, and it's kept going. They've got all this new stuff that so many people nowadays miss out on because they say, "Well, I haven't really listened to anything. I listen to Radio Two. And you go, "Really? Oh, very frustrating when someone our age sort of goes, "Oh, hip hop's all the same." But you, <laughs> you could say that about anything. It's based on a certain set of rules. But I love hip hop from different countries. I think there's something fascinating about it because it's it's a way that the youth can, or not just youth, but can articulate ideas. So uh, obviously they're shouting and yelling about something. Mm. So if you listen to hip hop from South America. It's got a dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum behind it. It's got a salsa beat behind it. Or if you listen to Arabic hip-hop, and it's got all that yeah. while they're going over the top of it. Fuck knows what they're on about. <laughs> they're all saying, I wish I had a record player when I was 14. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so just for you, we're going to put that in the time capsule as your first item. <laughs> Let's move on to item number two. Right, we need to interrupt this podcast here in order to allow the people who put this thing out to insert some adverts. We'll be back with more from Mark Steele in a moment. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Let's get straight back to Mark Steele and see if it's going to take 45 minutes for him to tell us about each of the items for his time capsule. Not that I'm complaining. Oh, what's item number two? Let's see. Now, I've made a little note of it, but my memory is terrible. Ah, yes. So, I'm going to put, and I I keep changing my mind about the exact thing, but I want to put a sporting object in there. 
I've always been absolutely, utterly, utterly drawn to sport. And I think that it is, I think it's because it's so emotional. I just love the emotion. Now, we're recording this, Mike, at the time of the Olympics. What would people remember about the Olympics? It's not the shuttlecock going this way, that way, or the particular ball bouncing in this direction. It's the human emotion. I mean, I guess Tom Daly, you know, breaking down in tears, getting his gold or that sort of thing, or um, the lad who seemed to fought a bits in the 100 metres final and um, yeah. decided he was going to set off a couple of minutes before everybody else. Do you know what? If he'd been allowed to do that, I reckon he'd have won that. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody rules. <laughs> but I think there's also something beautiful about the commitment and dedication to people of sort of to get better at something, to, to get better at catching so that they can field better at cricket. Or, And I think there's something I really love about that. You know, I think, for example, a woman who, who goes upside down in the air on a BMX bike, I, you know, this is not my favourite sport necessarily, BMX, but I just think what that represents, that little two seconds where you did that, represents the most of extraordinary dedication over a period of years to get to a point where you could do that. Mm. It carries with it the personality. That's why when you get certain people who go, oh, it's just a load of blokes kicking a ball around a field. But it isn't, is it? Because it's personalities kicking a ball around the field. And so it's a, the, the Euros in 2021 was a very, very different type of England it represented a, an entirely different sort of England than it would have done 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. One was the old England. There was no space for someone like John Terry in the modern England. This is an England that has people like Marcus Rashford in it, a lad from a poor background who at the age of 21 uses his position to become pretty much the official leader of the opposition in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and all of them having the nerve to speak out in public about something that they believe in. Extraordinary. An extraordinary bunch of people. Mm. And, of course, always sport is that it carries that. I mean, Dina Asher-Smith, the young athlete, you listen to her talking about anything. It's unbelievable. It's so articulate. It's like, mm. it's unbelievable. You know, it's sort of almost like a Barack Obama level of articulacy, you know. Yeah. And it's, um, and that, that of course, so it's a personality that's running. Ronnie O'Sullivan is, is an amazing viewing, in my view, because he plays like his personality. He's captivating because he is not just someone banging balls about. He's someone who was brought up with a father who was a gangster who ended up in prison for murder. And how do you cope with that? And his way of coping with that is he's a bloke who can knock in a century break in four minutes. <laughs> or one of my absolute all-time heroes is um, Andy Murray. I think he's just an absolutely fascinating, fascinating person who I think his personality was clearly shaped by done blame by being in eight years old in a school and a lunatic comes in with a gun and shoots people and whatever way it was and somehow he's come from there to be this extraordinary figure very willing to put his name to various causes but very humbly quiet and shy and yet when it comes to fighting for a point it's astonishingly determined astonishingly determined and then to be number four in the world at tennis at a time when the three people better than him were the three best players ever Mm. and then he just decides he's not going to be happy until he's 
better than all of them. And that <laughs> took more effort than he did to get to be number four. Yeah. And then um, when he played in the, the one French Open final, he played in, I was watching it in a pub in Somerset and there was one other bloke there and the screen was on. I sort of tried to talk to him a little bit, but he, he weren't having it. It got to the fourth set off with us, I said, oh, Murray's going to lose. And he and this bloke went, yeah, good. And I went, oh, I said, what? He went, yeah, good, I'm glad he's losing. I said, what if he don't support England, does he? I said, well, no, Djokovic, he supports Serbia, doesn't he? <laughs> he went, yeah, I don't care. I fucking hate it. Wanko, I fuck, I love I love watching him lose. I hate it. Wow. I, I swear, this is what happened, right? He went, I hate him. I can't stand him. I love watching him lose. Mm. I said, what? Why don't you like him? He went, well, he's miserable, isn't he? <laughs> 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 the way he got treated, I would have loved it. If at Wimbledon, the first time he won Wimbledon, he got to match point and then just turned to the crowd and gone, oh, just to let you know, this morning I was uh, accepted as a citizen of Peru, so you've still not got a British fucking chance. <laughs> also, I don't know why, but also I think going into a sports shop, going to a cricket shop, the smell <laughs> of the gloves and the, I don't know, there's a smell that a cricket shop has that just... Oh, but I think the thing that I would put in the time capsule, now I'm afraid this is going to need a bit of building work. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to get a lot of builders in for this. It's a snooker table. I think of all the sort of sporting objects, there's something about a snooker table. I think it's the shade of the green. It's just the most beautiful, luscious green of the bays of a snooker table. And when you go into one the snooker club, especially in the old days when nothing was ever open after half past 10 at night. <laughs> and then the snooker club was just seedy and naughty and everything about it was sinister. And you'd go in there and sort of pay a few bob and just go up these steps and it always just be this clunking noise, you know, the echoing around these big... And then the light, that really low light, and you'd pay the money and then put the light on, an hour of light over the table... And it was seedy and naughty, and you could stay here. There was used to be one down in Brixton. It was really hard to get, find anything open after eleven, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the telly used to shut at eleven. Everything shut at eleven. I think there are people a bit older than me who probably still today don't think there is such a time as three in the morning. <laughs> but this amazing scene of the snooker club, while everything outside is shut and dark and finished, and then. I just think there's something absolutely beautiful. There's something even more beautiful, I think, about a snooker table during the day when they've got blackout curtains up. And oh, you, yeah. And just occasionally somebody will brush past a curtain and the chink of bright sunlight will come through. Yes, that's true. That's right. That's so right. <laughs> yes. Oh, the outside world's still there. Yes. And you think there's probably at least three vampires in here that have cowed up at the table. <laughs> you think, I'll just have one more pint. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so brilliantly seedy, isn't it? And uh, I always remember being at that Brixton Snoopy Club. I still think, it's a long time ago, but I still think this is probably the most ignorant comment I've ever heard, and I loved him for it. <laughs> a bloke at the table behind me was talking to his mate, and he went, uh, did you see that uh, documentary last night on the telly? And his mate went, no, what's that? He went, uh, documentary uh, about that tribe. He goes, oh, what do you call them? Oh, you know, them tall skinny cunts. <laughs> 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 
It's a perfect description, though. <laughs> I know exactly who it means. <laughs> I mean, I know we both come from that thing, but sometimes that straightforwardness is so beautiful, isn't it? I was once in a cafe on the A5, and this lorry driver, he's sitting there with his breakfast, and he shouted, Here, Marge, what's this bread? <laughs> she went, I don't know, I can't ask. And she went out and she came back a couple of minutes later and said, Mother's Pride. And he went, Nice. <laughs> That's lovely. So poetic, isn't it? Yeah. Nice. My mate, Erstwhile, mentioned uh, Matthew, who was for years was saying to me, You've got to come up with Turkish baths, Mark. He said, You've got to come up with Turkish baths up in Westbourne Park around there somewhere. He said the characters around there are incredible. And he described these characters. And I always thought he was embellishing it. But oh, it's unbelievable. Because they, they really on him was one bloke. One bloke is about 80 like that. And he's just absolutely embittered about everything. And I like, <laughs> described him before. But he was exactly as he described him. He'd been diagnosed. He had a bit of cancer. And, they, and they'd got rid of it. And he'd been down to have the test. And he'd got the all clear. And he went, and he went, he said, I'll come out. He said, hey, give me the all clear. He said, I'll come out of there. And I got on a bus to get a bus home. He said, I was that happy. I could have punched that driver straight in the mouth. There's <laughs> <laughs> an expression of joy. <laughs> That's how I celebrate things. When we won the World Cup in 66, I murdered six blokes. <laughs> oh, Mark, you do have this fantastic... I mean, you bring it out in people. I mean, you've got this brilliant ability to remember those little tiny things in people's lives that actually sum them up. I mean, I think that's been a skill you've had right through your career. Oh, thanks. Oh, I've got a character. I've not quite got him yet. I love him. He went, um, he said to me, this is during half time, and sort of seeing that we're sitting in each other. And he was going, we had on Monday, I went, if you could force you for fucking, what you call give, fucking, we'll do that, do you? <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I've got, that's yes or no, I'll be all right. And I went, yeah. And he went, yeah, what you talking about? <laughs> Anything you've said for the last four years that I've known you. You can't really admit that, can you? You've got to go, no, of course I meant no. What am I I'll talking? be honest with you, mate. <laughs> I just never understood a word you've said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what bitch you get, you know. Flamingo. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's my snooker table. Yeah. I'll have blackout curtains so you can play any time of the day or night. Yeah. And I promise you that somewhere in that rack will be a straight queue. <laughs> Yes. All right, that's item number two, your snooker table. So what's number three for us? Right, now, item number three, um, oh, God, how do I say this? I think maybe something that represents the American Civil War. I'm not sure I can have the whole American Civil War in a time capsule, (laughs) but maybe something that represents it. There's one book in particular by a guy called McPherson, who um, maybe that, Mm. because I think it is the most... Yeah, I think that there's something something about history. If you read history properly, it seems to me it's not history. It's really you're really reading about people that, you know, they're, they're, oh, no, the, the building site bloke, they'll have had their equivalents in ancient Greece. And you're, you're really looking at, you know, human emotions are probably not that different in any era. And... I think that if you look, I mean, I, I, one, I did a series 
called the lectures, and I called it that partly because it was it was supposed to not be lectures. They were supposed to be sort of you know, pricking the pomposity of those lectures and stuff. Mm. Um, but I did have to find out the real story. And so it was a sort of, it was very lucky, really. So I got to read lots of things. I thought I had to work out what really happened in things and then try and do a sort of um, almost a spoof lecture around. But I think of all the historical events that I've read about, I think probably the American Civil War is the most extraordinary of all because it was people coming from the furthest down to be furthest up, if you like, people that were slaves at a time when they were just brought up to think that's what you were. God has made you this. You are subhuman. You are not the same species as the people that own you. Therefore, it is not only in the interests of all of us, but it is a necessity. It is a biological, philosophical necessity that you are owned. You are owned to the degree that if you are a woman and you have a child, your child immediately becomes the property of the owner and will be sent off to somewhere else and you will almost certainly never see that child again. Mm. You are pretty much an animal. That is how you are regarded. And yet at the end of that process, then those slaves had been an integral part of changing the world forever. And I think it therefore is that it is full of the most unbelievably extraordinarily moving stories. I, I did one of the um, shows I did in the, the lecture series on the telly. It was about a woman called Harriet Tubman who was, uh, and they would just have all of these, I mean, incredibly complex ways of hiding slaves as they were escaping and manoeuvring them into certain safe places and so on and getting them ideally up to, um, to Niagara Falls where there was a bridge where you could walk across to Canada and you would be free and there's incredibly moving stories of slaves walking across the bridge there and singing and and so on we're free uh, but Harriet Tubman did this and then became a soldier in the American Civil War so she was a woman who fled the plantations and then went back went back having escaped to get a husband amongst other people and get them to escape and Abraham Lincoln heard about her and uh, insisted on making her a sort of key figure in the Northern Army so I think it's just the most absolutely astonishing human story. It's a collection of human stories. Mm. I mean, it was a really brutal war as well. Terrible. Yeah, yeah, completely brutal. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't want to sort of over romanticise it. No. It was absolutely ghastly, filthy. The disease, the the hand to hand fighting in the middle of the woods, people just attacking each other with whatever bits of, and also because well, the, the, the military aspect is, uh, of it as well, of course, which is very often what people concentrate on. There's a 700 page book about one day of the Battle of Gettysburg, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all about the military complexities mm. and so on. But because there were modern weapons, but the old fashioned style of marching right up to the enemy therefore you know, something not, not that far from a machine gun when you're actually using formations that were designed for when people fought with muskets yep. and took about two minutes to go ready fire smoke oh that one didn't work that's only going to kill a few people but now you've got a thing. That's it, a Gatling gun. Yeah, and you wipe out everybody. So it was absolutely, utterly, utterly 
brutal and yet in the middle of this the social side of it is that what I also find fascinating is Abraham Lincoln as a character I find fascinating because he started out as someone who was not particularly bothered about slavery he just wanted to preserve the union and as the war went on it occurred to him or it didn't occur to him it was made to occur to him by abolitionists by people like Frederick Douglass who uh, and people who represented the slaves and were anti-slavery that the nature of this war was that if you abolish slavery, that is fundamentally why the Confederate states wanted to be separate, because they believed passionately, ideologically, that slavery was a form of state that was natural and that was in, and that you, apart from the fact, of course, they all depended upon it economically. Mm. So, and that if you crushed that, then you won the war and, and Lincoln, therefore, became a completely different person. He became someone completely committed to the abolition of slavery. And, mm. and therefore, himself, I think, is an extraordinary figure. There's a great story about he meets Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, that became a big, you know, immensely powerful book in the, the years before the Civil War in converting people to abolitionism. And he met her and he said, at last I've met the woman who started this war. <laughs> Amazing stories as, a, as an account. And I think this is true because there's several accounts that, that confirm this, for example, that at the end of the Civil War, the last town to surrender was Charleston. And Abraham Lincoln was leading a regiment up to the edge of Charleston, the, the Union regiments. And he insisted that a black regiment entirely black regiment made up mostly of ex-slaves who escaped should be the regiment that actually went in and finished the war. Wow. And uh, I just think it's an immensely moving sort of, if, if there's one scene in all history that we would just be, that would just be emotionally the most extraordinary thing to see. Uh, and there, there was an account in, I don't know which paper it was, but I you know, Maybe it's not didn't happen. I don't know, but certainly it was written in the account mm. that uh, Abraham Lincoln then was walking behind the regiment, and there was a black woman in Charleston who knelt down and said, "Mr. Lincoln, you know, thank you for all you've done." And it is reported that Abraham Lincoln said, "No, you must get off your knees. Those days are over." Mm. And uh, I just think, wow! I think what a and the stories, right? They're unbelievable. Right, here's just one. Mm. So there's a ship that the Confederates capture and they execute the crew that are from the north. The one person that they leave alive is the cook, a black guy who's a cook. And this is in the early days of the Civil War when, the, because the, when black people weren't allowed to be in the army at that point. Mm. And so they uh, they leave this cook because they, they, you know, they want the cook to be able to feed them all. And he's black, so they have a view of him that he's he's just black. He's not going to be in, you know, on his own. He's not going to be in any trouble. No. I don't know why. I, I would love it if Spielberg or someone like that did this as a film. So this guy, one night, overpowers the Confederates who have taken over the ship, like some sort of Steven Seagal film, <laughs> ties them up, sneaks around the boat one by one, takes control of the ship, and then guides it himself back to New York. By the time it gets back to New York, the story's got out of what's happened. And 
the guy is a is an absolute hero yeah. and he comes sailing in he got the boat comes comes into new york and i think i'm not sure about this now if i remember this right but i think abraham lincoln might even have been there to meet him i mean there's just sort of uh, there's just so many stories mm. like that mm. just one more right so there's a discussion because they're, they're very very close to each other the union and confederate armies were very very close to each other a great deal of the time and obviously sort of intelligence was incredibly important you know if only we knew where they're heading next and so on and then a, a guy goes up to my even general hooker who was commander at the time you know, i can't remember but certainly a general for the union army mm. and says i've got a plan my wife is on the other side she's because they're just they're so close to each other she's about a mile away and she's in the village over there right that the confederate army have captured and they've got her to do the washing and so they worked out this elaborate code and so every day she did the washing and then her husband would then go to the union general and say right that means you know the shirts there his socks are there that means his the cavalry's going over there and then time after time after time this confederate army would turn up and they'd just be ambushed because the union army knew where they were all because of this brilliant blowing his wife doing this washing car you know the equivalent of Bletchley park and all the time them going ah oh, we're just having such bad luck that's bad luck <laughs> yeah, exactly amazing yeah. So what is the book you'd like to put in that will remind you of this? Well, there's a book called Battle Cry for Freedom by a guy called James McPherson. I think that might be. I mean, that's that sort of explains the sort of dynamics of it more than anything else. But I think, you know, short of putting the whole American Civil War inside a time capsule, <laughs> which might be a little bit unwieldy, yes, probably even bigger than a snooker table. <laughs> A little bit bigger, yeah. And that whole thing of, as you say, the old-fashioned style of doing things, the fact that they didn't learn from that, that's sort of 40 years later and they've still not managed to work out that actually having people slowly marching towards machine guns or cannons is no longer a good idea. Well, I'm amazed that people did it, aren't you? That people... I'm just so amazed. And I think it's a sort of measure of the times we live in. I can't, like D-Day, I think, wow, did you... What what was in your mind? I mean, D-Day, obviously, a very honourable thing, mm. completely. But I sort of think, wow, if you're on them boats and you're on the landing thing and you're about to march up towards this, the Germans have completely fortified these beaches. Yeah. Do you sort of think, do you come to terms with the fact that eh, probably a 50-50 chance of whether I see the day out here? Mm-hmm. Or do you convince yourself you're going to be all right? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I've never been in a situation like it. I can't imagine it. But it is extraordinary that they say, we need you all to get in your little boats and go across and pick up the British Army. And they go, okay. You know, nobody says, you what? No, I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Of course, some will have been people who said, you what? But they've been, you know, I always think that with a, you know, with the, with, in recent times, you know, with the people, the Blitz spirit and stuff, people talking about the Blitz spirit uh, and so on, and they often use the war when they're talking about the vaccine. I don't need a vaccination. We bloody fought a war and all that. And I think, well, this is, you're the equivalent of someone in 1940 going, no one shells me to black out my windows. I'm going to put floodlights up and play five aside. Fuck them. <laughs> Go to Luftwaffe. I've destroyed the whole street because of you. It's my civil right. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I just, I know. I, know. I think something that is very often left out of military history 
is the ideological motivation is so, so important. It's why, you know, in a way, sport can be similar to that. Mm. So if you are the Viet Cong, despite the fact that you are immeasurably weaker than the most powerful military force that had ever existed up until that point, there's still a way of winning. You know mm. the area, you know the territory and so on. Everybody supports you in the area and so on. You know, the, the Second World War, there was a deep ideological motivation for that mm. that led people to get in the boats, Dunkirk or D-Day and so on, certainly the American Civil War. Those sorts of battles, they're driven by by an ideology and uh, obviously you need the military strategy as well. It's no good just sort of being ideological and going in like a crazy person, mm. chucking tin cans or something. <laughs> but uh, equally, if you're not ideologically motivated, if you're like the Russian army during the First World War, a peasant army under a czarist empire that you hate, mm. then as soon as things get difficult, you think, sort this for a lot. And you run off or shoot the officers and then run off so they can't even catch you. And um, that is an immense part of a military strategy. You can have all the stuff on the wall with all the bloody arrows and all that all you like. But if people aren't motivated, you're stuffed, aren't you? Yes. And it's why that speech, that Churchillian speech, fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them in the streets and in the fields. That speech, that's the first time that had been said. It was, it was, in a way, it was an acceptance of the fact that they may well invade. Yes. Expect the Germans to come over here. And if they do, we will defend every bush and tree. And that's an amazing thing to say in public. It could have completely backfired, that speech. Yes. People could have gone, what, they might be coming here? Oh, yes, I thought that, Mike. I thought, what would that have been like to have thought, wow, they... And I mean, of course you would. You'd think, well, they've gone everywhere else that they fancied. Mm -hmm. You know, logically speaking, why now you look back on it and you go, oh, I don't think it was ever seriously on the cards. Certainly they were planning to. Mm. You know, they knew where they were going, where they were going to land and all that, didn't they? Yeah. I worked with an old actor years ago, Anthony Quayle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Guns and Navarone, all that sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. He told me that he was in charge of a secret service department that set up tiny little resistance groups all over the country. And his group was in Northumberland. And he picked farmers and shepherds and people who knew the area. As you say, the advantage of knowing the area, knowing the land and having people on your side. So they'd pick seven or eight of them and give them stashes of armament and, and explosives. And they'd say, you hide them, don't tell us where they are. Everybody's individually responsible for their own stash. We won't tell you who the other people are, but if they invade, this is where you meet up. And those people didn't know who the other people were even after the war. We were on tour and he went to meet up with a group of these people and they'd never met. And most of them were from the same village. That should be a film. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. Imagine people got, I mean, oh, you? Oh, <laughs> glad we never had to meet up. You, I can't in Britain for you. And this, does, this leads us on to the next item. I think one of the towns that I've been to in the in town series, because I just sort of, I've never quite, uh, it seems very popular, I've never quite understood why really, but I just sort of go to these places and it's been a really lovely thing to do over the last 12 years as we speak. I'd have probably knocked up another couple of series if it wasn't for whoever did that bloody pesky virus. Mm-hmm. But it's such fun. Even if it never went out on the radio, it would be such <laughs> fun, right? Because I go, I just turn up to a place, Kings Lynn or Basingstoke or whatever, and um, 
in Portishead, this woman came up to this old fella, croaky old fella, like right there behind the counter. And a woman came in and she said, Have the tickets for the Lion King come in yet? <laughs> They're coming in tomorrow. And then she went, I just want to check. It's not the porn version, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I've been there about 10 minutes and I thought, right, we're off then. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what a I gift. Mean, to this day, I don't know what. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, when you sort of wander about a place, everywhere is everywhere is like that. And, I went in, and sometimes I sort of, as I'm telling you this, I'm thinking, did this happen or have I made it up? But it did, did, did happen. So went in the pub. And uh, sat there, and there was this lad sat behind at the table behind us, and they were about 16. And then this woman came in, and one of the lads shouted, Here, can I have a prostitute for my birthday? <laughs> this woman went, No, you can't. And he went, Oh, go on, mum. <laughs> <laughs> What's brilliant is that listening to it, you discover things about towns that you would absolutely have driven right through. You would have no interest in them. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, recently I was at the coast with my grandchildren. We were at Becks Hill. Yeah, my son-in-law said, oh, no, it's Pirate Weekend in Hastings. Yes. And I knew exactly what he was talking about because of your programme. Oh, yes. Pir- I was there on Pirate Day. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a there was um, a guy in a mobility scooter dressed as a pirate. Yes, <laughs> with a cutlass and everything, driving along the pavement, <laughs> all dressed as a pirate, waving this cutlass thing. <laughs> oh God! Driving a plank on the back of that and making you walk off it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's put Mark Steele's in town into the time capsule. Any particular town, Mark? One of my favourites was about Alderney, the most remote, really, of the Channel Islands. There's about 1,200 people live there. It's not easy to get to. And not only is it not easy to get to, it's not easy to understand what Mark is talking about when the technology that you're using to record it stops working. But fear not, it started again. But only after Mark had explained that during the German occupation of Alderney during the Second World War, when everyone on the island was evacuated to the mainland, the Germans used most of the accommodation either for the occupying troops or the prisoners in the concentration camps they established on the island. Sadly, this meant that much of the furniture of these places was moved or misplaced. Once the Germans left and the residents returned, this mess had to be sorted out. The furniture was put in a great pile in the town square and... And this is where the recording started again. Thank heavens. Someone, whoever it was in charge, said, right, get your furniture back. And there were families who went, and you know her at number 13? She took my bloody sideboard and that wasn't (laughs) hers. And that argument's gone on ever since. Yeah. And and I was doing this bit, right, in the in-town show, in the little town hall bit in Alderney. I was doing this. And one woman got up and went, yeah, there's a woman up the road still got my chest of drawers. <laughs> Brilliant. That belonged to my grandmother. These things never die. <laughs> my mother, whenever she got annoyed with my auntie Nellie, she used to say, yeah, she never paid me for those curtains. <laughs> Something that happened in 1946. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderfully mundane, isn't it? Just. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you know everything about both of them from that. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my old friend Linda Smith very sadly departed us from us, uh, but she told us once about a particularly miserable aunt that she had. <laughs> and she said <laughs> once she was round on um, Midsummer's Day, she was round her house and her aunt of the evening went, ah, well... That's the longest day of the year out of the way then. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way to live, live in the moment. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to your last item, Mark, which is something you want to get rid of. So what would that be? I would say to commission engineers to just make stuff that's got on, it's going to, in fact, I'll call it on-off. And that would be washing machine. Look at that shitty thing. There's about 600 buttons, lightning symbols, <laughs> Greek symbols, upside down clouds, fucking Christ knows what. What's that button for? That's if you want to watch the Turing Shroud. I'm just on, off. I put it on sometimes and then it's come out all stinking. I put it on seaweed auction or something and it bloody comes out and stinking. Just on, off. Just stop it. Two hours cotton polyester fucking silk. No, I haven't got <laughs> and the thermostat things, I hate them. And I there was here, I had to I've had to get a bloke come and take it out. And he went, no, nah, but you want to be able to plan it because you know what the thing with this is you can program it to come on in a year and three months' time. So you can be here walking in the bloody Andes and you can program it to come on, you get back from Ethro, get home, wallet, hot water. I'm not gonna I'm just on. And if I can wait two minutes for it to heat up. I don't care because I won't have all them other times in the middle of February. I can't turn it on because it's got <laughs> fucking, it, the summons happen to the numbers or something and you've got, all you've got to do is calculate the square root of the algebraic equation of the triangular Pythagoras theorem. Don't, ah! I, I tried to set up my life. I think you get people who go, you must have this one. I mean, people go, Oh, it's simple. What's the matter with you? It's simple. Like this laptop we're doing this on. Great. The new tech. I'm not against the new technology. We can talk to each other without having, although, uh, yeah, I've been very happy coming to Tumbridge Wells. But <laughs> there was a woman called a Kona or something. Hi, I'm a Kona. I'm going to help you to set up this laptop. And then you just, it's just simple. All it will take is just a few moments. And it <laughs> took hours and hours and hours. And hours, and in there, I just thought, I surely if you were real and you were murdered, not a jury would convict. I just, <laughs> so many things now that you have to spend, and online, going online, marvellous, but then you to, to go online to something that wants a password, not that password, password must contain seven different languages and a bloody, <laughs> and, and it must contain a picture and a bite of a, <laughs> Ancient Sumerian clothing. I just <laughs> it's simpler now. You do it online. How can that be simpler than me going nine o'clock, nine o'clock sorted? How is it simpler to go home and spend an hour trying to log into your? Can you remote? You've forgotten your password. Reset. Send a code. Bloody thing. As a thing's going to come up on your kettle that you have to remember and translate it into Bulgarian and fucking. <laughs> ah! I completely agree. I give up on these things. My yes. wife said the other day, well, why don't you just, just do it on online banking? And I said, no, no, no. I've, uh, after the third time that oh, they God, said, yeah. you've put in the wrong thing, or, 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 I, can't, I, I, said, I, just, I can't do it. I don't do it. 
Is it just an app on the phone? I said, no. It's not just an app on the phone. Right, let me tell you what happens. I, in the end, got persuaded to do I think my son set it up for me. Bless him. Now, what happens, every time I go on it, it says you've been logged off. Yeah. So, and then you can't go to the bank to sort it out because all the banks have been shut. <laughs> right, have you had this? Where they ring you, the bank rings you, and you go, the hello. Uh, hello, Mr. Steele, it's the bunk, Lloyd's bunk. Okay, I don't think I rang you. And then they go, before I can continue, you'll need to answer some security questions. You can't ring me. <laughs> I should be asking you. You've rung me. You can't ring me and then demand I answer your security. If you don't think I'm me, ring the person you think is me. <laughs> it's true. It's like knocking it's on mad. a door. Knocking on the door, and whoever answers, how do I know you're you? Don't knock on the door then. Go. Just... <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's so true. It's mad. We had one of those things with a heated towel rail put in. All right. And then outside of the bathroom was a heat controller for it. So you could decide when it came on and how long it stayed on for and how hot it got and all those things. And we just couldn't get the towel rail to come on unless we turned this thing off and then just turn the on switch on. And I said, we spent a lot of money on that, didn't we? Should we get the bloke back in? The fella came back in and he spent about two hours looking at this thing. Yeah. And then he went, ah, I know what it is. It thinks it's August. <laughs> It thinks it's August. That's 2021 summed up. It thinks it's August. That's the problem. It thinks it's August. Christmas was ruined. Oh, yeah, I see your problem. It thinks your house thinks, your digital smart house thinks it's August. You try to bring a tree in and a force field ejects it because it thinks it's August. Yep, that is the world summed up, I think. What a wonderful world. I'm going to chuck all that into the time capsule. <laughs> bury it deep in the ground, Mark. It's gone. Can we go back to a much simpler life? What an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having us on it. I look forward to seeing you in the flesh sometime and saying thank you properly. Oh, that, thanks so much, Mark. That's been really good fun. Really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Bless you, mate. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, but mostly my marvellous guest, the astonishing and charming Mark Steele. If you enjoyed listening and haven't done so already, then please do subscribe to this podcast. The more subscribers we get, the greater the chance of us keeping this up, which I hope is something you'd want. Please do tell your friends and maybe rate and review the show on your podcast provider. It really helps. And if you follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, you can share and retweet all sorts of information about what we're up to and what's coming up on the podcast. You can download the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Right, I'm going to listen again now to this podcast as I'm pretty sure that we came up with some ideas during our chat that are worth writing down and either selling or trying to get commissioned. The problem is, I need to write them down, otherwise I completely forget them and just remember the jokes. Actually, on second thoughts. I think I'll wait until the summer solstice to listen, and then at least I'll be able to say, well, that's the longest day of the year out the way. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.